Thank you for joining us today. Supporting today's event, Joy and Work, a Nicety or a Necessity, um, is a good friend to Longwood's Mirams Becker Healthcare Executive Search Specialists. Uh, they are a dedicated search organization with the sole focus on healthcare. Uh, to say a few opening remarks and welcome our featured guest, uh, I would like to hand the show over to the co-founder and partner, Haley Becker. Haley, it's all yours. Wonderful. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Longwoods, for giving Myram Specker the opportunity to sponsor this important leadership discussion. When Penny and I were approached and heard the topic was joy at work, the theme immediately resonated with us. Uh, as executive recruiters who are fully dedicated to serving the healthcare sector, we've seen firsthand the shifting motivations behind career moves. These motivations are greatly affected by health human resource challenges and amplified by the pandemic, where many leaders are really taking a step back to reevaluate what matters to them and where they want to spend their time and energy. Not only are our candidates seeking progressive roles and opportunities to make their mark at an operational and systems level, they're also seeking cultures leaders and organizational structures that promote joy at work. Uh, which leads us to our discussion today, and I am so delighted to introduce Dr. Chris Hayes. Uh, Chris is the Chief Health Information Officer and a critical care physician at Trillium Health Partners. He joined Trillium in 2018, where he co-led the implementation of the hospital's new health information system. And he's also an associate professor at the University of Toronto. In 2013, he was selected as the Harkness Fellow in Healthcare Policy and Practice and an Institute of Healthcare Improvement Fellow, where he spent a year in the United States studying high-performing healthcare systems. Uh, Chris, over to you. Thanks so much, Haley, and thanks, Matt, and hopefully you can hear me. Uh, it is a real pleasure uh, to be with uh, our community today, and thanks for those of you that uh, have taken the time to join. Um, I'm hoping that joy is what I'm going to be talking about, and I hope some of you have been experiencing joy this week, at least in Ontario, because the weather has been absolutely fabulous, uh, much unexpected, but there's always a renewed sense of uh, of happiness when we, we emerge from the winter and spring and I guess directly into summer. So I'm gonna talk about something today that's been a sort of a passion and a research venture of mine uh, since 2013, as Haley talks about when I uh, had the opportunity to spend a year in the US and really asking how are these organizations that we were looking to for their sort of quality leadership, how were they addressing, maintaining, doing all this change and uh, maintaining joy at the same time? Um, and since then, the pursuit of joy has become ever more important, especially uh, in the last three years with the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So I want to start with this quote, which came from the Lucian Leap Institute um, report called Through the Eyes of the Workforce. And I like it because it speaks to our industry, and it certainly speaks to myself as a, as a critical care physician. And it says, the service mission of people caring for people at times of their greatest vulnerability and need. This is the mission of the healthcare workforce, the mission from which its members derive their meaning as well as their experience of joy. And I will tell you that when I decided in grade 10 that I wanted to be a physician and took three times to get into med school, 
I was doing it because of this, this drive to be a part of that. And I know there's probably many people on the call that are in healthcare in some way to help people to be part of um, either improving quality, decreasing suffering and supporting uh, our, you know, some of our most vulnerable members of society through this industry we call health, healthcare and social services. So hopefully this resonates with you, but here's the problem. The level of burnout amongst those people who had a calling to go into this profession to help others who are not well and, or have illness, we, our sense of illness and our burnout has never been higher. And I'm not sure that we've reached the peak yet. I'm hoping we have, but this has now become a global crisis, the burnout of healthcare and its impacts. And so without going in, because you all live this every day, but this, this summates the, this problem. So the healthcare workforce is ill. And I chose the word ill because there is Canada statistics data that says that we, the healthcare industry, has more lost time from injury and illness than any other industry. And that includes forestry and mining and agriculture and uh, construction where people are, you know, 300 feet above um, the ground on a skyscraper. They have less time from loss from injury and illness. We have the highest. Um, there is countless studies, um, more recent, that have shown that it's increased, that there's a high level of burnout and growing mental illness within our profession. This preceded the COVID pandemic, but has only escalated since then. And as we've seen, and one of the biggest issues we have now as an industry is that we don't have enough people to actually provide the basic cares that we need. And as a result, we've had backlogs of surgeries, uh, but also the inability to fill, uh, you know, even the, the necessary ICU uh, uh, beds on a given day, because we're losing people, uh, uh, which has definitely been accelerated, but was on that trajectory prior to the pandemic. So that's our workforce, but this actually becomes a financial problem for our industry because an ill workforce costs money. It's high cost to replace and retrain people. To bring to onboard somebody new, you have that costs money. That that there's resources um, to you've lost sort of corporate intellectual capital and you know all the the knowledge that was gained through working with that environment has to be regained, and that costs money. Um, I don't know about your organization, but the agency use and, and the requirement of spending money on overtime has gone up um, as a result of the inability to, um, to fill shifts um, with full-time uh, non-overtime staff. And because the burden of illness is increasing, um, so are some of the uh, benefits or insurance costs that are being translated down by having a lot of our workforce not able to uh, perform the tasks for which they were hired and chose the career to do. And then finally, but probably the most important, is that patient care suffers as a result. And there's, system there's several systematic reviews that show that as we, that healthcare delivery workforce becomes more burdened, more burnt out, carry a higher degree of mental illness, you get lower patient satisfaction, lower quality, and higher patient safety incidents. So if I go back, the reason we go into healthcare is to help people because we're ill. As, a, as an industry, we're actually not able to achieve 
that goal, which is our primary mandate. So anyway, that's the problem. We, we all live in. I don't want to talk much about the problems other than to say that there is data on what's driving it. And so this was a recent study, fairly recent, looking at in the, in the throes of the pandemic, what are providers saying is what's, what's causing their burnout. So number one was high workload. And again, that's high, high workload just because of the acuity of the care has gone up and you're taking care of more COVID patients in the last three years, but also because you don't have as many staff. So you're, you're covering more patients. The, the environment is chaotic. They feel a sense of being undervalued. Um, a big part of burnout is the sense of lack of control over your work environment and your work tasks, a sense that the teamwork is not as effective as it needs to be, and in some degrees, a misalignment of values between what you as a caregiver or as an employee want to do and where the organization seems to be going or, um, um, or where the local team is going. So these are, they're not all of them, but these are six of the aggregators of burnout from a recent uh, JAMA um, article. And so what I wanna focus on mostly now is what can you do about this? Now there is lots going on at a national level and some of our national professional organizations. There's a lot of attention, a lot of advocacy, a lot of recommendations that are coming out that go that are going to uh, you know provincial governments and to federal governments. A lot of that is to get more resources, but whether those pushes for resources in um, more money to attract and retrain people, um, or making the accessibility of um, or the availability of care providers easier by doing things like a national licensure for physicians and nursing. But what I want to focus on is that most people's experience of joy and their work environment is not experienced at a national level. It's experienced at a local level. In fact, it's experienced within the unit that they work in. And so what can we do at that level as leaders within our own organizations to drive um, burn, burden and burnout lower um, and to drive joy higher? So I'm going to focus on two. How do you prioritize joy and work? And then how do you decrease the burden and the high workload that was listed as the number one aggravator of burnout? Okay, so let's talk about prioritizing joy and work. So now I would not be, and I can't see a show of hands, but if I could, and I said, who out there at an organization level has made joy and work a corporate priority? I bet a majority of hands would go up. But what does that really mean? So it's, it is very easy to put our people as a strategic priority, very easy. Um, but what does it mean? What do you do after that? How do, how do you realize a corporate priority, which right now is not just a priority, it's an imperative. Because if we, if we're, if we don't change this direct uh, trajectory, we can't function as a business, especially in a publicly funded system where the dollars are the dollars. How do you do this? It, it, it's, that's why the title is a necessity. This is, not, this is no longer something you can just do because you want to. It now, it's an actual business priority. So how, do you, how have you made that a, a corporate priority? And then the next question is, to what degree are you willing or to what degree are you resourcing this? And that doesn't, and right now there's a lot of extra resources going to hiring 
right? That's we, we need people. There are hiring fairs all over the place. HR has never been busier in the, probably. So if you work in HR, you've probably never been busier uh, in the last decade that you've been working. But those are higher, those are recruitment, right? And most people that you can recruit people, they stay because of retention. And, and so what are the resources that are being placed actually on promoting joint work and having people stay rather than the higher up? Hiring up is absolutely required, but keeping people is even more important. So are those necessary resources? Is it all within your department? Is it all within HR? How do you have these resources in at your program level or at your department level or at your unit level? How do you have it within your, um, your you know, professional staff association or medical advisory? What, where, do, where are the resources that allow for this to become a corporate widespread integrated priority? The third thing is, um, and this, this is a quality improvement tenant, is you can't, you, you as leaders can't come up with the strategies that are going to work without them being co-designed by the people that do the work, because they're the ones that are experiencing those barriers, those aggravators. They can tell you what the sources of burden and burnout are, and they can tell you that they're getting better and they can tell you what's going to work. So you must create mechanisms to co-design those improvements in the workplace at a unit level, at a program level, and at a corporate level. Um, and we'll, I'll talk about some of the some things that people have done. You need to develop worker-centered metrics and measure frequently. So many people probably have some form of a staff engagement or staff satisfaction survey. You might be do maybe you're doing it more than once a year, but this is real time measurement. How do you know that a strategy that you're trying yesterday is having an impact today? And so one of the things that while while I was had the pleasure of being at IHI, where we really started to look at you know joy and work, uh, and this was back in 2014, um, we designed a strategy where um, before you left every day you grabbed either a solid marble or a clear marble to say, and the, the question was is, you know, did you experience meaning and purpose? I think some, some question like that at work today to your expectations. Simple question, every day people walk by a simple, they put either the solid one or the clear one and IHI, because quality improvement, collated that and produced a run chart every week at their staff meeting to say, how are we? Ask the question, well, how could we be better? And then they look temporally to see, wait a minute, things got worse. Why did they get worse? They're like, oh, because it's the IHI forum. If anybody knows that in December, we're all working like flat out. So they could look at temporal reasons as to why joy or sense of purpose was fluctuating and then respond using worker-centric ideas that were targeted at the problems that they were raising in a timely manner. So what do you, how do you do that, right? What's that? What's the sense of the pulse um, check-in that you need? And, and I'll, 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 in fact, I'll move to the next one because there's strategies to do this. And there's lots of strategies, but I'm going to focus on one um, because A, I've used it, and B, um, uh, we, I guess we were part of the development. But that's to use methods known 
to improve joy in work. Um, and so this is what came out of some of that work at I, early work at IHI was the IHI framework for improving joint work. Now, I am not saying that this is the only one you should use, um, but I do like it because it's practical. It has a whole alliance of people that are sharing um, how they do this, what structures they're putting in place. Um, it has education and workshops. Um, it trains chief sort of joy officers. So there's lots of resources around that, around this, but this is where it stemmed from. So on the left here, figure two, is sort of the wheel of happiness. And so through both research and, um, and their alliance, their leadership alliance network, they came up with nine factors that they believe dr uh, drive joy in work. Physical and psychological safety. If you don't feel safe to work, it's hard to experience joy. Meaning and purpose, it goes back to that Lucian Leap quote. Choice and autonomy, the ability as a professional to be able to influence your own environment. Recognition and rewards, so vital for people that are giving of themselves um, every day. Participative management, camaraderie and teamwork, daily improvement, wellness and resilience, and real-time measurement. And so when they said, well, that's great, if those are the factors, what are the steps that leaders should take to understand and address them? And so the first thing is ask your staff what Marine Bisignano, the former CEO of IHI, would say you must ask of every patient, rather than what's the matter with you, what matters to you? So if we're going to ask those questions to our patients, which we should do, we should ask our staff, what matters to you when you're at work? Number two, identify unique impediments to joy and work in the local context. What's getting in the way of you having joy, meaning, and purpose, value, um, in, in your day-to-day -day work. Commit to a systems approach to making joint work a shared responsibility at all levels of the organization. As, and as I said earlier, um, commit the resources that would be required to, to actually make those um, that approach um, have demonstrable outcomes. And then you know, number four is not a surprise given it's IHI. Use improvement science to test approaches to improving joy and work in your organization. And that gets to the co-design and the iterative feedback, which is the cornerstones of quality. So by using those methods, you're, you're going to learn from the people that are doing the work and trying to change the work. Is it working or is it not working? So nice framework that's available on IHI.org. If you don't have it in your, in your fleet of tools, you should download it. Um, and what I wanted to do is just because while I was going back on the uh, IHI uh, website just to see if anything was new, I came across uh, my old, uh, shouldn't say old hospital, but my former uh, place of work, which was St. Mike's Now Unity. Um, and they were highlighted recently as a uh, in their results-oriented learning network. Um, and so what you see on the left here is some examples of how of the, those elements, camaraderie, teamwork, recognition, rewards, wellness, and resilience, and daily improvement, and on their um, on the right side, some of the things that they've done through what's called the Joy Fund, and so they've set aside money and had teams, local teams at the unit level, compete for ideas that um, and get resource to try and do things like behind the mask and Unity Health uh, virtual choir. 
and they've got a whole mechanism. And I'm sure um, that if you uh, reach out to them, they will, uh, as they've shared with me, um, th their entire mechanism by doing this. But this is really about getting people to co-design joy at their own unit level with a, a, a fairly moderate budget to support that. Um, and they're seeing great success from that in their in their multi-year. But so that's one example of using um, the Institute for Healthcare uh, a joy work framework. So I want to move away from the corporate, make it a priority, resource it, get metrics, involve people, to the other part, which is decreasing burden. So, and I've, I've boiled it down to these three. Avoid burden, plan to avoid burden, and implement change to avoid burden. And so on the avoid one, I'm going to talk about avoiding the acceleration trap. And so this is a great article um, by Brooke and Man Mangues uh, in Harvard Business Review, and the, the references there. And so what they call this, this organizational acceleration trap, which is in three buckets, overloading, employees overloaded with too many activities without sufficient time or resources to complete them um, to, their, to the expectation. Multi-loading, where employees are asked to do too many kinds of activities. So you're like, which, what do I focus my brain energy on? And perpetual loading, which is the constant change with no hope of retreat or recharging. And this is not just, I'm not like, this is not a healthcare provider issue. This is, a, this is an entire organization. Now, I'm going to share this. I know these, this is way too much for one slide, but I do just want to if you start reading these questions, if you can, if you can see them. And if you answer yes to more than five, and for sure, if you answer yes to more than eight, you are trapped. In your, your organization is trapped. Um, and so, you know, I'll just quickly read them. Are activities started too quickly? Is it hard to get the most important things done because too many activities diffuse focus? Is ending activities considered a sign of weakness? Are projects carried out pro forma because people fear ending them publicly? Is there a tendency to continually drive the organization to the limits of its capacity? Is it impossible for employees to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Does the company value attendance at work and meetings more than goal achievement? Does it visibly value visibly hard effort over tangible results? Are employees made to feel guilty if they leave work early? Do employees talk a lot about how big their workload is? Is business valued? Are managers expected to act as role models by being involved in multiple projects? Is no a taboo word? Is there an expectation in the organization that people must respond to emails within minutes? Do countless people routinely get copied on emails because employees are trying to protect themselves? And in their free time, do employees keep their cell phones or messaging devices on because they feel that they always need to be reachable? So this is based on uh, a large uh, data set um, of companies that were surveyed. Um, and again, so if you happen to answer between five and eight or more than eight, there's a good chance that you are caught in the acceleration trap and of an acceleration culture. Now, most of the, we're in healthcare. I think healthcare as an industry is just deemed to being trapped because we're a public service and there's a lot of pressure on us from society, uh, which has absolutely grown uh, in the last three years because of the pandemic. But the question is, so some of this we may not have control over, but what do we have control over and how do we uh, avoid um, getting further caught in the acceleration culture uh, trap? 
Uh, if you download the article, there is strategies in there to how to try and avoid or how to escape um, an acceleration culture and trap. Uh, hopefully you can review that uh, post the session. So now that you know that maybe we're doing too much, how do you plan to, we still, we still got lots of things to do. Most people do not have two corporate objectives. They probably have 20. So how do you plan to avoid burden um, and plan to avoid competing priorities? So uh, I'm gonna oops, show it this way. So in the, I'm gonna say, in the, what, I, what, what I'm showing here, clinical managers, providers, and patients, at least in acute healthcare, um, is what I'm gonna call the delivery arm. That's the day-to-day -day that happens to do daily tasks to care for people. Um, and, and that environment, which I'm gonna call the sacred space. And on top of that is all the different departments within a, a typical organization that may or may not have one or two um, projects, plans, priorities for the year. And they each may say, um, dear managers, please do this. Dear providers, you need to do this. And they're coming at them through multiple um, um, vantage points. And the front line feels attacked. In fact, it develops a sense of resistance because they build a shell around, and there's lots of literature to support this, that as multiple priorities come in, people build a shell to protect themselves and they put their head down and just focus on their main tasks. It actually builds presenteeism for those that know that term. So this overwhelms people. It certainly overwhelms managers and providers. And when they feel overwhelmed and get burnt out, the relationship with patients suffers. And so if that space is overburdened and by lack of planning, then we're inducing a poorer patient experience and burnout amongst our providers and our managers. So you need some sort of mechanism that gets between the, the corporate objectives, the plans, the things that you must do and want to do, and some sort of, and this may, this may be a structure or a process um, that looks to say, well, wait a minute, can we do this? Do we have the resources both time, money, expertise, uh, you know, freedom. Do we have those? Do we have the evidence that this is this would work before we undertake it? And so uh, Bell and Health um, in Wisconsin has this massive playbook, which is, you know, they, they care for the Green Bay Packers, but they have this massive playbook that they go through this, ver this exercise of saying, are we going to take this on? Because if we're going to take this on and it's going to influence this space, this sacred space, it's got to work. We've got to have good belief that it's going to work before we do it. Otherwise, we park it. And I'm not saying some things you just have to do because they come from beyond uh, your organization, but at least what's in your control, come up with this mechanism. What it does then is it creates a very different um, interface between upper management and uh, you know, sort of frontline management and, and, and tries to avoid the burdening, the competing priorities, the translation of the acceleration trap, it, un, it frees up clinical managers and providers who can then do what they were destined to do and want to do, which is provide high quality, uh, high experience care for patients. So lots of strategy, uh, there's an, uh, Kaiser Permanente has something called their energy map where they go through a similar exercise. But how do you know that you're taking on too much? How do you know that you've um, that you've got the resources, the evidence, 
uh, to actually achieve if you're going to disrupt that sacred space. And then I'm going to move to uh, uh, sort of a focus on my research focus, which is if you've decided you're going to implement change, how do you do it so that people are willing and able to adopt that change? And so I had sort of this phrase that says, in an effort to improve healthcare, are we making it harder to provide care? And if the answer to that is yes, we're contributing to the illness of our workforce. So I, I, this, is my, this was my Harkness Fellowship uh, research project. So my hypothesis was that change initiatives that do not add additional workload and of high perceived value are more likely to be adopted by the frontline users, cause less workplace burden. They're more likely to achieve their intended outcomes, the reason you were doing the change in the first place, and they're less likely to worsen joy in work. And so this uh, graphically on the right is as perceived value, meaning people, the people doing this work go, this is good. We should do this. This is going to make a difference. Verse, and then on the, uh, on the x-axis, increasing workload, the point is to design for the top left quadrant. If you design your change in that top left quadrant, you're way more likely to get sustainable adoption than if you plan most people don't say, I'm going to make it less adoptable. But you, if, you, if, I, if I get you to reflect on some of your change initiatives, you could probably say, yeah, they probably actually were down in that bottom right corner and they're probably not working. So a whole bunch of research was done, um, both the website and our article was there. But this is sort of the highly adoptable improvement model. And so in the middle is the recipients of change, the people that are going to have to do something differently in order for the change to seek its benefits. Um, and there's this dance that's going on between workload capacity and value, perceived value. And um, these things influence each other because if your perceived value is high, most of us underestimate the workload, which is why our New Year's resolutions fail in about two to three months. Um, if the value is low, you know, five clicks on a computer is going to aggravate people. So they're they're dependent upon each other. But your change initiative is going to manipulate this 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 dance between value, workload, and capacity through two ways: the intervention design, meaning what are you actually asking people to do? What's the task or tasks uh, the, or process? And then the implementation strategy. How are you actually asking people to do this, which is really more of your change management strategy? So the, the model produces two outcomes, one in which you increase workload or decrease capacity, and there's low perceived value for this change amongst the change recipients. The literature is very clear that this induces burnout, change fatigue, change cynicism, forces people to do workarounds, and then makes them more likely to commit human error. Because they're not reliably doing it, it's less likely that your, your goals are being achieved, the intended outcomes for doing the change initiative. And both of these have impact feedback on that group because they're like, well, wait a minute, you said that these things would get better, whatever they are, patient care, what, um, you said they would get better, they're not, and my work's harder. I don't like quality improvement, I don't like change, stay away. We build, you can actively build resistance into your organization through a change initiative that is not adoptable. So the other strategy is one where there's high perceived value for the change. We want to do this. We see this as important. We see this as valuable. Uh, we see this as working. Um, not introducing 
net new workload or actually reducing workload or augmenting capacity. So the literature is also clear that you're more likely to get sustainable adoption of the change, and in this case, an improvement intervention. If your science is correct, meaning that if you do A, you get B, you're more likely to have your intended outcomes achieved. And this has positive feedback on the recipients because they're like, wow, look what we achieved together. And you know what? It wasn't that hard. I like change. Let's do more of it. It actually promotes an improvement culture, whereas the other one causes improvement culture resistance. So again, uh, uh, how we went about this, how we got this, but what we said is, okay, great. It's a nice model. It's got some nice colors. What do you do about this? How do you address this? So we boiled six factor, boiled down to six factors uh, from, from the literature, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. So end user participation. To what degree are you involving the people that have to do this change or expected to in the change from inception to prototyping, to testing, to revising, to implementing and sustaining? Alignment and planning, and that really speaks to the slides I showed earlier. Is this, if this is so important, why are seven initiatives being done in that environment at the same time? How did you plan this? Are they expecting this? Are they part of that planning process? Resource availability, are the, is the adequate training equipment, time and personnel for the impl implementation known? To know it, you have to observe the change and see what's, and then you have to make it available. Now, now I'm not saying that and sometimes you can't, um, you know, just, it's not like we have excess money sitting everywhere, but at least if you know what is required, you can at least try and address that in some way. And, and people will say like, they're really trying to make this work rather than thrusting work upon people for which they can't do. Are you measuring workload? And that's both cognitive, physical, and time. How much is associated with the change? If you've not measured it, you could be adding an hour. You could be adding 10 minutes. You don't know. Um, and in fact, there was um, research looking back at quality improvement initiatives that came out of like the 100,000 Lives campaign that showed that the ventilator-associated pneumonia bundle in the ICU was actually adding an hour per nurse per day. No one knew that until after they studied it. And what people said is, well, I think it's important, but maybe I'm not moving the patient as much as I need to, or I'm not doing other things because there's a balance. You only have so many, you only have so much time and so many hands. Complexity or simplicity. How complex is the, is the change intervention? Um, could it be made simpler? Could you get rid of humans needing to do it at all? Um, what degree of evidence and this efficacy or perceived efficacy, what degree of evidence of relief is there that the intervention will lead to the intended outcome? So, and I don't mean you need randomized control trial evidence for everything, but if no one else has done it like you and have achieved the goals, why would you? In fact, what you might be, what you might be doing is an innovation. And innovation is great and we need more of it, but you don't implement innovation. You test innovation because its chance of failure is much higher than something that's already been demonstrated to work. Um, so these are the six elements and what we did, um, and it's in our model uh, and toolkit, is to take teams through, is there initiative? To what degree is there participation planning of a resource? Is it highly adoptable? And so it's an exercise that teams go through to ask themselves and at, at various points of their projects and say, how do we move it from high risk to highly adoptable? And then, you know, just this is an example of a, of a subjective workload tool. It's called the NASA Task Load Index, where you ask people, 
you know, how mentally demanding was the task? How physically demanding? How hurried were you? And I'll go to the last one, which is the best one. How insecure, discouraged, irritated, stressed, and annoyed were you? If you're, if the people that are supposed to be doing this work are saying very high, the likelihood of it sticking over time and actually making a difference are low. And then on the right here is just some lean thinking to say, to lean out the intervention, to remove workload associated with change. Does it need all those proposed steps? Could steps processes be simplified? Could we add equipment and technology? Could we add other non-traditional um, uh, uh, workers or patients and families to help distribute the, the, the workload and create co-care with our, you know, like, like they do in pediatric care with the patients? Lots of opportunities to try and simplify or, or spread the work associated with the change. So I'm gonna move to end by saying that, of course, we need strategies right now and resourcing to increase the number and mobility of the healthcare workforce. We are in a deficit. We're in a deficit because people have left the profession and we're in a deficit because there's a lot of people off, off sick um, and we need to recruit more. So there needs to be full attention on that. And I think, fortunately, I think that is getting, um, it, it's getting attention and we should be seeing resources towards that, that offset as, as a delivery arm, spending money that should go to patient care or join work on recruitment strategies. So hopefully that will help. We need to work on reducing care backlogs and addressing access and equity. There's no question that we've seen um, that the pandemic has, it's, it's really shed light on the inequities uh, amongst and uh, in access and care provision for our populations. And we've seen our surgical volumes increase uh, and trying to get um, you know, th those necessary procedures done. And we have to focus on those but it must be in addition to strategically aiming to improve local workplace wellness and joy in the local work environment that then rises up into corporate joy and work. Because those that care or support the care of patients, you know it's hard. You also know that change is hard. Most people don't want change um, and change itself is a hard, uh, is a hard task but we really have to stop making it harder. And by doing so, we will not, we will get ourselves out of the acceleration trap. We will stop overburdening our managers and our frontline workforce and allow, and then give time and energy to let them gain meaning from interactions with patients, which is what they went into the profession for, and to actually work with their colleagues to improve the joy that they experience as an interprofessional team. So with that, uh, everything I talked about about highly adoptable improvement is available at the highlyadoptableqi.com website. Uh, this, and I'm just putting a plug in for my other website, which is uh, Best Day in Healthcare, which is to really get people to share that healthcare is hard, but there's pure magic. There's pure magic that we experience and that we deliver. And we need to harness those stories, which is actually a joint work strategy, we need to harness those stories because they're the ones that drive our sense of meaning and purpose and why we're in this industry. And Best Day in Healthcare is a mechanism to create uh, a pool of those stories that people can share and learn from. Uh, so with that, uh, I'd like to uh, end and hopefully we can have a discussion 
uh, on whether you agree or disagree with the things I've said, but hopefully there's questions that we can dialogue on. So thank you very much. Okay, so I see questions. So I'm gonna answer these. So again, I've got um, a few here. Please um, feel free to submit more. So can't, uh, uh, can you touch on the direct manager or manager-mentee relationship? So people probably know that there's that saying that says people don't leave organizations, they leave managers, right? Bec and that speaks to the fact that the local environment is so important. So there, there is a, our leaders, like, so part of this strategy, and if, you, if corporate priority, if your corporate priority is joy and work, that means that you have to protect, equip, train your managers, ensure that they have all of the, the, um, the resources they need to create a well-working environment. Um, and so that manager, you know, frontline manager to their director is important. So, but that should be part, the, the, the question should always be, you know, how how can I help you ensure that there's joy and work for you? Are you experiencing joy and work? What matters to you? What what local impediments get in the way of you being a manager, you know, that reports to me? So everybody asks these questions. Um, and and so that's how you you can you can mentor um that that relationship. Um, so this one just a uh, change about quite a change, just a question about change management and the balance between the need for change, the burning platform versus people's inherent anxiety around learning new tasks, learner anxiety. How do you strike the balance? So there's two parts to this. So one is what must, if you were to look at all the things, if you could have a, first of all, do you have a corporate catalog of all the change initiatives, um, that hit the front line, right? So or the hitcher manager. So do you have a catalog? Because depending on how big your organization is very hard to do, but if you, but you need an exercise of cataloging that. And then you say, okay, well, how many of these things are must do's, you know, versus nice to do's. Um, and, and it's hard to say we want to spend all our time just doing must do's, but you, you got to focus on, if you can't resource the must-dos, how do you do the like to, the, the want to do's? So that's a way of, um, of, of separating and, and categorizing the work you have to do. Now, I will also say that, you know, and as a senior leadership member of Trillium, there's a lot of external pressure that's not in the control of the organization. And this requires advocacy up to say, you know, if joint work is important, for the province of Ontario, for the province of British Columbia, if it's important, why are you overburdening our workforce? You're overburdening us and it's just trickle down acceleration trap. So people have to understand, and that's where there's this, there's this challenge between providing a public good, but being able to sustain as an industry to do it. And right now they're challenged, they're grossly challenged. Um, and I just think that ramping up the expectations is not the strategy and if it is it needs a whole bunch of other resources so so the anxiety when you say learner anxiety that's just um like i'm barely getting through my day and you're asking me to do something new 
and and I and I kind of want to do it, but I don't think I can. And it creates this dis it creates cognitive dissonance in people that like I I really want to do this, but I'm doing this. So you only have two ways to to stop that. One is to do it to somehow muster up the resources to do it, which may burn you out, right? Or or is to devalue the the like ah this is not as important. I'll you know. I think I should be doing that, but I don't, I, you know, I don't really need to. So you're devaluing the the reason for doing the change, which creates presenteeism. I'll put my head down. I'll get through my, I'll get through the tasks of the day because I can't reflect on I'm not providing good care. That is a very, very hard thing for frontline providers to say. I went into this profession. I'm not providing good care. I want to, but I can't. So that's very destructive. It's why people leave. It's why people get burnt out. It's why people develop mental illness um, as a result of patient care. But we have to make the work doable. Um, um, how would you apply this to the non-clinical staff that are keeping an organization? Absolutely. So again, I, I think, you know, again, most healthcare is a massive interprofessional team of people that have direct patient contacts and people that don't have direct patient contact, but without the organization wouldn't run. Um, and their burden too. And it only takes, you know, if, well, in my next world right now, if, if your IT staff and the people that support your health information system are burnt out and leave, then the tools to support your delivery arm go down. So it's absolutely, it's, it's everyone. And so this is not a, just a care provider. Um, I know I hooked it on the Lucian Leap Institute. But I would say, why, why do people choose healthcare to perform their finance task versus the finance world where you probably make a lot more money? It's because of the, there's a, there's a feeling of, of good by being a part of a system that's primary objective is to improve quality of life and decrease suffering. Um, so um, just want to say as an ICU nurse and now involved in supporting wellness for physician, this hits the mark. Well, that's right. uh, everything you show, that's a comment. So thanks very much. Um, can you provide some examples for how you've instilled joy in workplace amongst your caregivers? So by, by your caregivers, you're talking um, <clears throat> uh, to me personally. So I'll, I'll talk about some things that we locally do in my care. So again, I, I, I'm an ICU physician. Um, and, and some of this is what we've done, you know, I've worked in multiple organizations in the past, but some of the things I do uh, and we've tried to instill is, so uh, at St. Joe's, when I worked at St. Joe's, I didn't do this, but the organization, the ICU created something called the Three Wishes Project. And the Three Wishes Project was aimed at, it was actually a research study, but it was aimed at by Deborah Cook, if anybody knows Deborah Cook. So it was aimed at uh, providing a better dying experience for the ICU patients and their families. How could we, what, so it's called three wishes, but it was really, how can we make this in this environment better? Whether it be music, whether it be food, which is hard in COVID, um, whether it be, you know, song, whether it be artwork, what, what would make this a better experience? And so there's a little modest budget, budget to support this. But what we found was, or what they found was that the experience of the patient and their family in the dying process improved. The relationship between the family and the patient, if the patient could contribute, and the provider 
became stronger. There was a sense of reciprocity and people felt good about what they were doing, even though it was a, you know, a very hard event in these people's lives. To the point where the nurses said, we need to do this for everybody. Like, let's just make this part of what we do because I just feel better. Um, another strategy that we had, and this was at St. Mike's, where sort of what, you know, where did they go? What happened to them? So we had, you know, patients that we, we're caring for in their extreme, you know, possible life-ending situation. And then they, they get better and they leave. What happens to them? And so I, I specifically remember, and it's, you can read the story because it's on Best Day in Healthcare, where we took care of this, you know, 19-year-old with terrible disseminated malignant uh, metastatic testicular cancer. And everyone thought he was going to die. Anyway, he didn't. And then he came back. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe how tall and strong. I don't remember him being this way. He came back and said, you know, thank you. I don't really remember what, but I know that you did everything. And we as a team felt that we had performed magic. So that's the type of things like look for those local experiences. And so we are uh, trying at, at, within Trillium in the Department of Critical Care, trying to bring some of those things that really celebrate um, corporate reward programs, um, recognizing people, celebration days, um, um, creating, you know, social events um, that you can, like all of those things, they're not enough, but they make a difference because people want to, um, they, they want to work. They want to celebrate and, and escape sort of the day-to-day -day grind with each other. So there's lots of things you can do um, at your, at the caregiver level. Um, and, but I would say that people gain joy when they spend valuable time with the people that they want to serve. So you have to create that space. We value, if, we've, if we know that the relationship between provider and patient is so important, do we measure that? Like, do we measure how much time did you spend, you know, holding the hand or sitting at the bedside of your patient today? Do we measure it? Or do we measure, did you give your pills on time? How, how often did you move them? Did you do the ventilator checks? We're measuring activity, you know, at, rather than measuring the relationship because the relationship is what patients want. They want the relationship and providers want it too. Hopefully that answer. Um, does this relate to concepts we've heard in the news lately about quiet quitting? So quiet quitting, and again, if I, if I understand the term, um, it's around this presenteeism where you've essentially, you know, you can't, you, you can't quit. You, you know, like if you're not in a financial position to say, I'm not doing this anymore, or the, the search for another job is just too difficult, um, then can you just put your head down? Can you can you turn your day into a set of tasks that you need to perform? But what this and where this happens, and you if you could categorize that group of workers, and again, this is this is not just patient care. You these people are in finance, they're in HR, they're in IT, they're in your your engineering services. Um, they they're less interactive, right, with their people. They 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 come to work, they leave. They don't have friends at work. They don't. They don't participate um, and they may get their tasks done, um, but without gaining reward from it. So that's that concept of quiet quitting or presenteeism, which, you know, yes, it's a, it's a person at work. It's not the person at work. Um, and we, how do we get the person, not a person uh, in those, in those roles? Uh, span of control is an issue. Managers covering multiple units. 
that would be overload, overload of no joy. I mean, absolutely. And some of this is, you know, there's a difference. You know, I don't, I don't want to speak that this is easy. Like this work is so hard and you can't have a unit go without a manager for weeks on end. Um, so somebody has to pick up. And that's true. Like we have to provide care. This is what I'm saying. By a nature, we're stuck in this acceleration trap because of the the, the business. We we can't just say we're we're closing today. We can't do that. Um, but then, what are those mechanisms that allow people escape? What resources, are, extra resources, are we providing? Like what 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 do we do? And so, one of the big things at Trillium right now is leader rounding, and we've like doubled down on leader rounding to say, you know, I know your day is hard. And, and we we actually look to say where are the pressures in the organization and send multiple leaders down there, try and say, look, how can I help? Uh, so in some cases, we we go in and, you know, we, we do patient-based tasks to try and, you know, get let the patients know that the organization is in this and we understand there's a lot of pressure, but also that the staff know that we're in this together. Um, and it just sort of, you know, how do you mobilize resources, especially if you know and you can measure where your your burnout hotspots or your burden hotspots are. Um, you're addressing a number of key points about prioritization, being mindful of what projects to take on. It would be better to do less. Exactly. So it's a comment. Um, it, it It's absolutely. And I remember when I was doing my Harkness Fellowship and we had the pleasure of having health ministers from the world sort of come together. And the health minister, um, former nurse of Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, said, as a province, as a as a as a as a country's minister, um, we have thirteen priorities. I don't think we can do thirteen well, so we're going down to three. So ten were removed. So how do you do that? Right? How how do you say we? Our aspirations are high, our desires to be better are, are there, but you can't let your aspirations outstrip your resources because the, the, the people, the, the message that gets sent deeper into the organization is, do they know what's going on? Like, do they really understand? Like, how are all these things happening when we can't even get through the day? So, so, and, and, how do you make your planning process transparent, right? So that, you know, it's not like the papal conclave where the senior leaders go into a room for whatever and white smoke comes out and you've got a new pope. Like, how do you make it transparent so that people like, okay, I, they're actually reflecting on the issues that I think are important um, or why you've chosen the things that you've chosen? Um, oh, this is a good question. We're about to introduce a new health information system. We know that it is associated with a lot of frustration and we're being op open about the need for behavior change and we're really trying to get physician engagement, but it's hard even despite a lot of explanation about the rationale, the elevator pitch. Any thoughts about how to make this critical issue of joyful experience? We have a year to go. <laughs> so, I mean, that one's probably an offline because I could tell you hundreds of things that not only I would do, but should have done and would do again if I had to go through this. Um, uh, what I say about digital is if, if you can't quantify how digitization will decrease burden, and it's not easy, but if you can't do that and you don't have objectives put in place 
that actually look at because the 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 problem with digitization is one sometimes the expectation shift now that we can collect this data we want you to collect this data so your documentation needs go up we've 100% seen that in the US there they you know in order to get paid the documentation requirements have gone through the roof and keep escalating the second is is that the machine capability is so good that people start feeding the machine they want to feed the machine and then there's inefficiencies in the design um so same thing like design with people what are things they're doing that they don't need to do right do you need to document everything and sometimes we do this we we have frontline people document so that as senior leaders we know if they're doing the tasks that's our way of knowing but that's a burden like is that, do they really need to document or should they be doing the care? I mean, maybe a spot audit to see that they're doing it would be, or tell, show me, you know, let me see how you're mobilizing this patient rather than filling out a mobilization plan and saying, I've done all these things. Yes, you can capture the data, but is it at risk of not having the care being done? Um, where do you put innovation? And I know we're, okay, I don't know if we're, do we go to right to two? We can fit in a few more here. Uh, innovation initiatives on the acceleration trap. So again, if, if you have time and space for innovation and you resources it appropriately, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't turn into Im implementation, then, then you need more innovation. But I think we need innovation that's purely targeted at de-burdening the environment, right? And, and, and so, and this is coming from a colleague of mine, you know, some of our front end line, front front end speech technology now is getting to the point where it listens to the conversation between provider and patient and does the documentation for you. I mean, I'm sure Chat GBT could do it already, but so what? Because that's what we have to do. We have to have the have the encounter with the patient and then document the encounter with the patient. And if the documentation and there's data say this takes lot is taking more than the actual time with the patient. Imagine if the time with the patient became the documentation. That is a huge freer of time, huge. And that's through digital uh, uh, you know, innovation. So definitely think it's important. I think I'm not gonna, there's a lot in here, so I'm not gonna get through them all. Um, but uh, as, as Matt said, um, if there's a mechanism for me to get at them, um, I will. Uh, I really thank you for uh, your active participation. I hope what I shared with you is tactical because and practical that there's things that you can take back to your organization and try, or there's resources that you can um, look at that I've shared to help you in your joy and work journey. Because if your people experience joy, so will you.